Hello and welcome to a new season of Interpreting India. The geopolitical realignments, sustainable growth, healthcare financing, inclusive digital transformations, climate change, supply chain disruptions, urbanization, and several other critical global matters envelope the world as India holds the G20 presidency. We at Carnegie India continue to bring voices from India and around the world to examine the role of technology, the economy, and international security in shaping India's future. My name is Konak Bhandari, and I will be your host for this episode of Interpreting India. In this episode, we will be looking at the semiconductor ecosystem. As you all may be aware, the U.S.-India Initiative on Critical and Emerging Technologies, called ISET, was launched during the sidelines of the Quad Summit in Tokyo during May 2022. The purpose of the ISET was to expand the partnership in critical and emerging technologies, including in semiconductors. As part of the ISET, the Semiconductor Industry Association, the SIA, in the U.S. and India's India Electronic Semiconductor Association, called the IESA, agreed to undertake a readiness assessment to identify near-term industry opportunities and facilitate the longer-term strategic development of the contemporary semiconductor ecosystems. The Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, the ITIF, a Washington, D.C.-based science and technology policy think tank, was commissioned to undertake authorship of this assessment. To give us insight into these issues around the semiconductor ecosystem and much more, I'm delighted to be speaking with Stephen Azell of the ITIF. Stephen is Vice President for Global Innovation Policy at the ITIF and the Director of ITIF's Center for Life Sciences Innovation. He also leads the Global Trade and Innovation Policy Alliance. His areas of expertise include science and technology policy, international competitiveness, trade, and manufacturing. Stephen is also the co-author of Innovating in a Service-Driven Economy, Insights, Application, and Practice, as well as Innovation Economics, The Race for Global Advantage. Stephen, welcome to Interpreting India. Thank you, Kanak. So Stephen, uh, my first question to you is about something you've written about quite a bit, which is essentially, you know, in addition to the rapid buildup of domestic manufacturing capacity spurred by the U.S. Chips Act, tax credits and incentives, the intensification of U.S. tensions and the imposition of export controls are encouraging many multinational technology companies to relocate production and assembly outside of China. Now, my question here is given given all that has happened in the last five, six months, uh, especially with regard to American companies thinking about possibly offshoring to India or thinking about opening R&D centers, do you think the recent announcements made by Micron, AMD, Applied Materials and LAM Research, especially when it comes to the India operations, reflects the start of a trend to gradually move some operations to India? Well, Conrad, that's a great question. And I think its answer involves two parts. You know, the the first part of your question, you know, really is about, you know, is there a move uh, out of China by foreign multinational corporations? And I think that there is increasingly strong evidence of this. Uh, The U.S. Chamber of Commerce uh, in China Their annual report at the start of this year uh, noted, quote, nearly twice as many U.S. companies cut their investments in China in 2022 as opposed to the year before. One third of their respondents reported that they were planning to, quote, redirect planned investments we were going to make in China in 2022 to other countries. Uh, So 
combining, uh, uh, obviously, the geopolitical tensions with the continuing COVID-19 lockdowns in China, as well as the reality that manufacturing labor costs have substantially risen in China in recent years, I think we are beginning to see uh, a broader shift, at least to a China plus one strategy on the part of multinational corporations. And they're certainly looking at alternative sources of production and supply outside of China. So, yes, I do think this portends a phenomenal opportunity for India at this point in time, not just in semiconductors, not just in ICTs or electronics, but across a wide swath of manufacturing activity, including, you know, green energy, um, uh, uh, automotive, motorcycles, et cetera. Um, it's a real opportunity. And, and yeah, so you mentioned the recent announcements made in the semiconductor sector specifically from Micron, AMD, Applied, LAM, et cetera. Um, so, yes, I, I think this, this this does signal the start of a trend. I know we'll get more uh, later on in this conversation into India's strategies to attract semiconductor manufacturing. Obviously, a very aggressive set of policies put forward by the Indus, India Semiconductor Mission, very attractive incentive packages, um, which are starting to bear some fruit. Uh, but as as I'll say later, um, if India really wants to take advantage of this opportunity, um, it's not just about putting dollar signs out there to attract investors through PLI. It's through making sure India has every facet of its you know business and finance and regulatory structure in place, from tax to customs to tariffs to regulations um, that make India one of the world's most attractive places to do business for companies in any industry. Thank you for that, Stephen. Uh, you spoke briefly about the Indian Semiconductor Mission, and I think my next question is going to sort of probably speak to its role uh, in guiding investments into the Indian semiconductor ecosystem. Uh, something which I would like to bring up to the notice of our audience here is that the U.S. Chips and Science Act essentially includes a $500 million fund, uh, which is called the America the Chips for America International Technology Security and Innovation Fund, also the ITSI Fund. Now, in your recent interim report on semiconductor readiness assessment for India, it was noted that a not-so-insignificant share of these funds should be allocated to partnerships with Indian stakeholders and, of course, possibly other coordination partners as well. Now, the key question is, Stephen, how do you think these funds can be utilized? Well, I think... Optimally, these funds can be used for education uh, and for setting up kind of shared uh, testbed prototyping infrastructures. So, for instance, in the interim report we delivered um, in June uh, for the ISET, uh, we noted that one thing this CHIPS money could do among quad nation partners is to support both design and foundry interest by establishing a joint prototyping testbed foundry that could be used as a way to validate innovative chip designs. Um, because what happens now, especially when we look at the, the design uh, element of semiconductor production, I uh, have all these innovative companies in Silicon Valley and India all around the world, and they come up with an innovative chip design. Um, but you got to get it 
print it. You got to get it fabricated. So what do you do? Well, you call the leaders, you call TSMC or Intel and say, hey, can you print this chip for us? And they say, well, what's your production run? Like, well, it's just, we're, we're testing it. And, you know, <laughs> they're, they're, they're doing million dollar, you know, uh, million unit chip volumes for Apple or, or Qualcomm, right? So then there's a gap in the ecosystem uh, to have like a, 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 a prototyping testbed facility where we can support some of these small innovative chip designers with kind of these initial, um, you, know, you, know, you know, test runs. So that's one idea I think that could be done with this money uh, in part between uh, US, India and other partners. Uh, another set of recommendations we have uh, is to stand up a world-class research and development center and test and characterization facility for the development of embedded systems and semiconductor products. These EMCs or electronic manufacturing centers could be set up as domain-specific centers of excellence in manufacturing. And as many as 25 EMCs, we believe, could be established in India with as little as $3 million in funding. Other uh, uh, Uses of this money could be to develop a comprehensive cross-country semiconductor supply chain value map and to work on joint curriculum development in, uh, you know, advanced electrical engineering, computer engineering courses and support uh, student exchanges between the U.S. and India uh, at the master's and Ph.D. levels in relevant engineering fields. So um, I think a lot that can be uh, uh, done if this money is put to good use. So, Stephen, you mentioned towards the end of your answer something about a cross-country semiconductor value map. And that leads me to my next question, which is essentially about friendshoring, which is this you know, term which has been coined in the last couple of years about like-minded countries coming together in the supply chain, be it for semiconductors or be it for other components in electronic materials as well. Now, my question here is, you know, how will semiconductor companies make up for the shortfall in revenue resulting from restrictions on exporting advanced semiconductor equipment to China? The thing is that the Chinese market represents around $300 billion in revenue for a lot of the semiconductor companies. And India is currently at the moment not quite at that level uh, when it comes to you know, export potential to India. Uh, India is expected to have an $80 billion market for semiconductors by 2026. Uh, and this will probably at that point in time represent less than 10% of the global market share, which is expected to be around $1 trillion by 2030. So my question here is, how do India and like-minded nations that seek to band together under a friendshoring initiative, you know, be it the ISAID, be it the Chip for Alliance, which India is not a part of, or the EU-India and the US-EU Trade and Technology Councils, how will all these friendshoring initiatives fill this void? You know, it's a very important, difficult question. But if we're going to crack this nut, I think we have to be thinking about the challenge at a much higher geopolitical and geostrategic level. So the reality today uh, is that 36% of U.S. semiconductor sales go to China. But the broader, re and by the way, China accounts for 40% of global ICT and electronics production today. But the reality is that in 2003, China only accounted for 8% of global high-tech output, including in ICTs. But from 2003 to 2019, China's share of global high-tech output increased from 8% to 27%, right? A 400% increase. Similarly, if we look at each year of the 1970s, India's economy was two-thirds more productive than China's 
over that decade. Over the past decade, China's economy has been two-thirds more productive than India's year over year. The point I'm trying to make is that we take the situation today as a fait accompli, as, as the way it is. But it doesn't have to be that way. And, and I say this because the, the way we have to deal with this challenge is to imagine a world where in a decade we can say, you know, only 10 to 15 percent of America's semiconductor sales have to go to China because we are making ICT and electronics goods in other parts of the world. Um, so you know, many of the semiconductors sold in China today are not for the final use in China, but therefore incorporation into a device like a smartphone that is exported out to the rest of the world. If we are making those smartphones, those tablets, those laptops, those mouses, those iPads, those AI devices, whatever, in democratic, like-minded countries in South Africa, in South America, in Africa, in India, in Southeast Asia, then that's how we solve that problem. So I think what many people miss in this whole friendshoring thing is that they're seeing the, the what they mean by friendshoring is they're looking at at um, value chains. They're looking at where's the production coming from, but the real question isn't that. The real question is where's the final demand going to come from, right? Um, you know, so where are we selling these things in ultimately? So if we can bring, you know, 1.3 billion well-off Indian consumers into the global economy, millions more from South America, then we solve both sides of this equation. So not just where it's produced, it's where it's consumed. And we have much more of this happen in free societies because that drives the economic growth we need, the market growth we need. And then we broadly decrease our dependence on China. That's the only way to circle the square. Stephen, that's a great uh, answer. I'll just add on to this in the form of a question. The thing is that in the next few years, there may not be a potential alternative to China. Yes, these friendshoring initiatives are all, you know, basically just that initiatives. And I think these are attempts to gradually sort of onshore certain parts of the value chain back to different countries. But in the meantime, until that happens, how do these companies, which have sort of been hit by the U.S. export controls and sort of been prevented from selling to China, how will these companies plow money into their R&D activities? The thing is that these companies, once they stop selling to China, may not be able to make it back to, to China. The reason I say that is because there have been news reports how SMIC in China has now managed to make 7 nanometer chips using DOV machines. And the recent launch of the Huawei Mate 60 Pro shows that other local suppliers may have managed to fill in the gap vacated by American suppliers. So the question is, in the meantime, you know, how do these companies, American companies to be specific, plow the money which they would have gone, which they would have gotten, but now which has been foregone into R&D activities? Well, I think my answer to that question is going to be an extension to your previous question. Because here is the fundamental long-term reality. We just said 36% of U.S. semiconductor industry sales go to China. The CCP wants that number to be 0%. The number of Boeing or Airbus airplanes China wants to buy is 0%. The number of robotics, of machine tools, of solar panels, of wind turbines. China, in our view at ITIF, fundamentally seeks an economic strategy of autarky, meaning domestic self-sufficiency in all advanced technology industries, of course, while still having unfettered access to global markets for its exports, right? So in our view, broadly, 
if you look at the evolution of China's economic strategy over the past 30 years, we contend that it has evolved from an initial attraction strategy under Deng Xiaoping in the 1980s, uh, especially trying to attract the foreign investment. As China got more of it, got more um, of, of kind of a, a center of gravity for market demand, it entered what we called a compulsion phase, meaning it would start to say to companies, okay, if you want to sell into China, then you have to transfer technology. Uh, you have to transfer intellectual property. You have to produce here as a condition of market for, uh, access. Uh, this was in China called uh, trading technology for market. But what we're seeing now is a move from attraction to compulsion to expulsion. So now when China has a satisfactory domestic competitor in a certain marketplace, it starts to expel the foreign competitors. And a great example of this is what was called in China the DIOE strategy. And this meant D-Intel, D-Oracle, and D-EMC, which was like an um, enterprise solutions provider. So once China's got a domestic player, it starts to kick the foreign companies out. So what I'm trying to say is I think foreign players have to understand that, that China is actively wanting to decrease their ability to sell into this marketplace over time and to develop long-term strategies to be prepared for that reality. Now, coming back to the present, because you rightfully say that, um, that yes, just like any advanced technology industry, right, in the life sciences, it's the profits from a cholesterol or a diabetes drug that companies earn that they can then reinvest into future generations of innovation to solve a cancer or COVID-19. So just the same in the semiconductor industry, it's the profits from the 14 nanometer fab that beget the money to invest in the seven nanometer and the three nanometer and the two nanometer. So the, the reality is companies have to earn revenues uh, to invest in future generations of R and D. And um, uh, again, uh, the only way out of this box is if we're creating other markets outside China that these companies long term can sell into to get the revenues to reinvest in R&D. The other side of the equation uh, would be to um, continue to work with like minded countries uh, to uh, prevail upon China that as a member of the World Trade Organization, they have committed to other countries and uh, the rest of the international community, that they will conduct their economic affairs in accordance with the foundational WTO principles of rules-governed market-based trade in adherence with the fundamental principles of national treatment, reciprocity, and non-discrimination. Um, you know, uh, that's, that was the deal, right? Uh, you join the WTO, you have access to global markets, but you give uh, foreign companies the right to compete in your market on non-discriminatory terms. Um, if that's not going to be the case, um, then I think that we're in for a disruptive period in the global economy. All right. Okay. I mean, one of the things India has been trying to get up and running is a fabrication ecosystem in India when it comes to semiconductors. You know, these companies which have announced plans to invest into India have focused on the end of assembly and packaging and chip design and workforce training. But something which is not there, which at the moment at least is something which is an investment in a fabrication facility. Now, what do you make of arguments 
which are often put forth by certain experts that, you know, fabrication facilities too ambitious. India should start off with ATMP facilities to begin with. Do you see these as valid arguments? Uh, is the accomplishment of setting up an ATMP facility and a fabrication facility mutually exclusive? You know, Connor, you know, my view is that, no, the, the, the goal of attracting investment in assembly, test and packaging uh, or in fabrication, uh, these are not mutually exclusive. Uh, you can walk and chew gum at the same time. These can happen together. Now, where I think I, I do agree um, is, you know, when you think about making semiconductors, this is truly one of the most complex manufacturing processes that exists in, in, in humankind, if not the most complex manufacturing process. Um, you know, the newest fabs um, that are coming online, the two, three nanometer stuff, these are $30 billion investments, right? Um, now I know for legacy stuff, you know, 28 you know, 56, that, that, that's not the price tag for that is, is, you know, single digit billions. Point I'm trying to make is I do think there's an argument to be made. Um, and, and perhaps that exists among the multinational corporations in this sector that, you know, India's, uh, ability to effectively operate an ATP facility, uh, it, it, it represents a proof point. It represents a first step. Show us you can do that that all works well, then we have a lot more confidence that we can make these types of investments for uh, you know, a, much, a much more expensive semiconductor fab in India. So I don't think they're exclusive, but I do think there is perhaps sentiment um, in the community that show us you can do ATP and then we'll be much more inclined to believe that you, you can really do the fab at the highest levels. That makes sense. That's, so it seems almost like these investments which have been announced and how they'll be treated by the Indian government will serve as a proof of concept for any further investments uh, down the line. Okay. Tip of the spear argument, yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, just one more thing now. Moving on to the issue of you know subsidies and financial incentives. So I know that you've spoken about tax credits being a big, big thing when it comes to you know providing incentive to semiconductor companies. But I just want to ask for those of our viewers who are just, you know, We'll be listening to this podcast. Why the preference for tax credits? Why not? Why not grants? Why not loans? Why not? I mean, equity. Why? Why this particular form of uh, financial investment? Well, so if you look at you know the U.S. Chips uh, Act, uh, what what that included was essentially um, about. Uh, the $39 billion of, of, of grants, uh, $12 billion roughly for R&D. And then there was a separate uh, ITC or investment tax credit uh, that our Congressional Budget Office scored being at about $24 billion. Um, the reason I, I think the tax credits are an attractive instrument um, is – you know, with with the with the subsidies uh, on, on on the thirty nine billion dollars on the chip side, you know, you got to go through you know multi year potentially application process. Uh, you don't know if you're going to get it. You don't know what amount you're going to get. You don't know who you're going to have to partner with. You don't know what the conditions are. But with an ITC knowing that you can take a twenty five percent credit on your investments, you know that's there. That's certain. Um, you can go and start putting the shovel in the ground tomorrow, immediately, not having to wait a year or two and and go through the you know that that the, 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 that 
process, um, you can you can move immediately with certainty that that money is going to be available to you, and and you know that makes a big difference for you know the, the finances and the shareholders of, of these companies, etc. Um, also, I think it. Again, we talked about very large investments, multi-billion dollars. These aren't insignificant financial undertakings for companies, right? Um, so if you have that certainty that, oh, I have this 25% credit, that's that's just, and, and, and I know it's there, I know I can get it immediately, um, then that's just much more certain, uh, at least the way... Um, uh, our, our financial and taxation system works in the United States. Now in, in India, listen, I, as I said before, um, a lot to like, you know, with the, with the PLI, uh, the, the production linked incentive, uh, scheme, you know, with Micron, the investment they're going to make in the ATP, uh, it sounds as I understand that as much as 50% of that investment might be, um, written off by the federal government, maybe 20% more by the relevant state. So you get 70% up front. That's a wonderful deal for Micron to take. Um, and it does achieve that tip of the sphere argument. But the problem with this, right, is it's not sustainable, right? You get one, you get two. That money runs out fairly quickly. Indy doesn't just need one or two shiny objects. Um, it doesn't need, you know, a couple of Lamborghinis in the garage. You know, it needs a whole ecosystem that's deep and broad and sustainable over time. And, you know, just throwing dollars at the problem doesn't get you there. But the tax credit, you know, that it is throwing dollars. I agree. But it's it can be an even level playing field instrument that all companies can take. Uh, and, and I just think um, it's 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 worth more countries considering more seriously. Well, I guess the issue of tax credits has not really gotten sufficient attention here in India, to be honest. And I think, you know, the segues into something else as well, that Something we take for granted in India is that we have a robust talent pool when it comes to chip design engineers. And the government has focused on that. Uh, but for whatever reason, and I think maybe you can come in here and tell us about why this is not really taken off, there's not sufficient presence of Indian companies in the chip design ecosystem. I mean, there's this often quoted number that 30% of the global chip design talent resides in India. At the same time, India has not been able to leverage this talent pool into a viable ecosystem for local chip for local chip design. Why do you think that is, why do you think that the, the local chip design ecosystem in India has lagged that of its global peers? You know, that's an interesting question. Um, it seems to me when I hear stuff like this, you know, is, 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 is the problem more the lack of venture capital? Is the problem more lack of, of just startup, you know, you know, founder depth um, that, that, you know, the, the, input side may explain part of the problem. And I think another challenge, you know, where are these chip design people? I mean, they're, they're working for Texas Instruments, right? They're working for Intel. They're working for, you know, large multinational semiconductor companies. And wh what does that matter? It matters because those companies have the relationships with the end users, right? Um, in a lot of cases. And, and it's hard for any company, a startup company, to recreate those, those final customer relationships uh, with the people, uh, you know, Qualcomm or Broadcom or, you know, whoever is using ultimately, you know, you know, the, 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 the thing itself. So, so maybe just part of the problem is, is there with, with the channel. Um, uh, it's, you know, it's the, 
it's it's interesting that so much chip design activity does occur, as you said, in India, um, but that so much of that continues to happen under the the MNC house as opposed to the Indian startup house. And I would suspect it, it's kind of market structure factors that are somehow driving that. All right. Uh, I think this also ties into the issue of trade as well. That's often neglected. Uh, because we spoke about subsidies. We spoke about, you know, this has to be sustainable in the long run. You just can't offer a one-time massive subsidy and then hope that it will continue. But one argument often brought forward by observers is that India's absence from a large trade block like the RCEP or the RCEB uh, is something which might be a stumbling block to India sort of getting, you know, others to relocate their operations to India. So my issue is how significant a role does trade policy, or at least, I, I mean, if I may be specific here, how, how badly does India's absence from the RCEP hurt India when it comes to semiconductor supply chains? Well. I, I would say trade policy is a significant factor uh, in companies' investment decisions. And I was talking with one company the other day, and they, in the, in, it's a semiconductor manufacturer, a large one, and they were saying that when they decide to invest somewhere, they have a checklist of 489 factors that each country and region and community they're in has got to check off all 489, right? That's what you have to do to compete in the global economy today, right? Every little detail matters. And if the trade regimes a country is part of are or are not making it conducive to uh, move parts, components, and inputs in and out of a country, yes, it's a factor. Um, you know, but, but with regard to trade policy, uh, what I see as a significantly more significant uh, uh, stumbling block for India than RCEP is the Information Technology Agreement, uh, the ITA. Uh, this is a uh, WTO agreement that counts uh, 82 members, and it eliminates tariffs on trade in, in covered ICT goods. It started in 1996, it was expanded in 2015. Now, India is a member of the original ITA, but not the expanded ITA or ITA2. And the reality with semiconductors is we're dealing with the world's fourth most traded product. And as you know, making these things uh, requires uh, the movement of uh, of, of wafers uh, across the global supply chain, um, a wide range of, of inputs, components, cables, boards, fiber, you know, fiber, all this stuff, right? So the point is, if countries don't offer a zero in, zero out tariff environment to move all these things you have to move uh, to make a semiconductor, then yes, it's going to make a country less competitive. And so, you know, every dollar India applies on uh, like 10% tariffs on, on, on PCBs, printed circuit boards, um, that's just a, a cost factor that companies are going to consider. And it militates against the decision to, to make investments in India. Uh, by the way, this is why countries that are not in the information technology agreement have seen their participation in global value chains for the production of ICTs decline by 70% since the ITA entered force in 1995. If you don't offer a zero in, zero out tariff environment, 
you simply get circumvented in uh, global production chains for ICT goods. So the most important thing I would counsel India to do in this regard is to join the Information Technology Agreement 2, as well as to consider joining uh, an ITA 3. Uh, the global community is now starting to look at an expanded list of products that might be in an ITA 3. We released at ITIF a report yesterday uh, called How an ITA 3 Can uh, uh, Drive a Nation's Economic Growth. And we found that uh, if India were to join an ITA 3 alone, it could increase its economy by 2.5% over a decade. And the amount of tariffs India uh, the, the amount of tax revenue from this expanded economic growth India could realize would be more than twice as much as the tariffs it's forgone. So broadly, uh, you know, I would encourage India to uh, be a more active uh, player in these global trade agreements, whether ITA 2, 3, um, and, and as well as RCEP. But I think RCEP is less of a stumbling block than ITA. Well, yeah, with that being said, uh, I think we'll just talk briefly about or at least I'll segue to a different question now, which is about how this weekend India hosted the G20 event uh, in New Delhi and uh, President Biden came down to India as well. And they discussed certain issues in the bilateral relationship, including the ISET. Uh, one thing which was you know, at least seen in the joint statement or joint declaration issued by the Indian and the Americans was that they actually took stock of all the investments announced during the June visit of PM Modi to Washington. And I'm paraphrasing here, but I think it said that they're satisfied with the progress made when it comes to the likes of Micron and AMD and, you know, applied materials and LAM research. My question is, Stephen, that given that all we have discussed today on trade policy subsidies, you know, tax credits and the uh, local talent pool, how would you actually rate India's readiness to receive more investments? That's essentially what you have, you know, done in June and will be, of course, you know, coming out with the full report soon on the readiness assessment for Indian semiconductor ecosystem. My, my question here is, how do you take into account that statement uh, in the joint declaration or the joint statement which speaks about how the progress on these investments has been satisfactory versus what we just heard about India being sort of absent from trade partnerships, trade blocks, ITA2. Uh, how, do you, how do you possibly square that up? Well, you know, I recently visited India uh, doing research for this report. And uh, one of the themes I constantly heard from Indian government officials was the commitment uh, that they had, they were making uh, to move India from a country of red tape to red carpet. And I think as long as that continues to be the mindset, as long as that rhetoric is matched by reality, by action, um, as long as, uh, you know, reforms continue to happen to improve the business environment, have clear, consistent, reliable taxation policy, uh, not doing retroactive taxation, for instance, um, making sure that there's single window customs clearance, um, then, then, yes, I think that there is a significant level of readiness uh, in the Indian economy uh, to become a, a much more active player uh, in global semiconductor production. Uh, but it needs to be consistent. It needs to be across the board. Um, you know, we've seen cases where, oh, we have one supplier coming in and they cut all these deals for the 
no tariffs on their inputs into a special economic zone, for instance. Okay. Yeah, but that's a political deal that may or may not last across administrations, right? It needs to be institutionalized, systemic, available to all players, uh, and a focus not just on shiny objects, but deep ecosystems. That's a great point, Stephen. I think I'll just end here on the note that I recently read a press report about how why how while Micron has been given these substantive uh, you know subsidies to sort of move its operations in ATMP to Gujarat in India. At the same time, a lot of the other suppliers in the same value chain, which supply to Micron, are now also asking for the same financial incentives. So you have the likes of, you know, Simtech saying to the government that, listen, you know, we would not move unless you offer us the same incentives. And we are pretty much the part of the same Micron supply chain. So how can you possibly offer them the incentives and, and not us? So I, I completely couldn't be, you know, uh, more in agreement with you when you say that these incentives have to be more sustainable you know, more long-term, and it can't be just a one-off thing. So on that note, uh, thank you, Stephen, for joining us. And uh, yeah. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. To make sure you don't miss it, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. To learn more about our research and team, you can visit us at carnegieindia.org. You can also visit us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening. See you next time.